Aalto University Podcast. Hello, welcome to yet another episode of Cloud Reaches. My name is Mika. And um, I'm joined here today by two fantastic guests. So Kathy Lundin from Gustavus Adolphus College and Dini M. Foray from Western New England University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good, good morning and good evening. It's good to see you, Mika. Thank you for the invitation. Now... Um, Before we before we get into the conversation more deeply, um, could could you can I explain or like briefly describe what you have been doing so far? And you've been doing so many amazing things, but just to give like some flesh around the bones. Uh, well, I'm Jeannie, and I'm a professor of management at, as you mentioned, at Western New England University, where I have been for just over 20 years. Uh, yes, I know. Um, uh, and uh, during that period of time, which is really for me a second career, um, I have been involved in uh, various teaching engagements with undergraduate and graduate students. So I teach management and leadership um, and change, organizational change. Um, I've also been taking students abroad through a variety of different programs that uh, I was allowed to develop, which is uh, pretty nice for me, entrepreneurially speaking. Um, I've been involved in the academy uh, through various divisions and organizations uh, I have been publishing. Um, so when I when I left a, a prior uh, industry career and came into academia, I fully embraced the three forms of Um, engagement that are available to all of us um, and have built a career around um, the uh, the serendipity of academic life, which I very much like and appreciate. Well, this is Kathy, and I've done um, different things than Jeannie, but this is also sort of a second career. I started in banking uh, right after undergrad and also in master's. I owned a small business. I had a partnership, which they don't really tell you. Partnerships are like marriages, but you don't ask the right questions. And so um, that ended badly, but I learned a lot. So that was awesome. And uh, now I hold a uh, an endowed chair at Gustavus. And by the way, Mika, your your pronunciation of the institution is probably one of the best that I've heard for people that. unfamiliar. Yeah. And I will chalk that up to your Scandinavian background because uh, we are a Swedish-based institution uh, just south of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And uh, I hold a chair in ethics and leadership. Uh, and I also have joint appointments at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand and St. Andrews in Scotland. And my path is more um, not as administrative as Jeannie. She is, she has a, an administrative genius that I do not possess. Uh, my role is more, uh, I get emails from the provost and the president saying that the subject line is interesting opportunity. And so I do various and sundry odd things for the for the institution and it's a it's a it's a visionary kind of a position and it allows me to be very active externally um, as well at the academy and the journal and things like that so it's fun I mean definitely like I, I really I really love the sound of like both of your career pathways like it's really um, that in itself would be like really fascinating to kind of talk about more um, But I think like one of the reasons why we are here now is that you've been the editors of Journal of Management Education from 2014 to 2021. Was it July this year? Yes. July 1. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Boom. 
So, so how has it been like this uh, first fall? Oh, <laughs> um, wow! Just as busy as it was in June. Um, I don't think either one of us uh, knows how not to be busy, um, and so uh, we began discussing what we, what we were going to do together. Actually, after um, the journal editorship. Uh, finished. Um, so we've been, we've been engaging in those activities and saying, um, saying maybe yes more to other things um, from time to time that we weren't able to do when we mm-hmm. were doing the work of the journal. Mm-hmm. Well, journal you know, education. <laughs> after Jamie, you know, we thought, although we were counseled in that last editorial, which we have referenced, Mika, um, from mm-hmm. other former editors, um, you think you have all of these big chunks of time now. And now we would say into any vacuum rushes stuff, right? So uh, one thing that's been really fun, aside from engaging with Jeannie, continuing to engage with Jeannie in many of the things that we found joy in, in editing, just in Mm. a different space. uh, I've been teaching myself different research methods and um, doing some other, I I have a paper under review with a student. I've never created a research project with an undergraduate before. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of fun. So um, I've taught myself social network analysis and I'm learning how to use Twitter uh, to uh, engage a data set and doing some longitudinal panel interview projects. And so it's just been really interesting to bring up that list i think that many people keep like future research projects um, and be able to kind of tick some of those off Uh, so that's been really fun Mm -hmm. yeah i think also just in terms of because of the way the world has been organized over the last couple of years and the transitions that we've all had to make um i decided on some career trajectory moves as well that might not have come about had we not stepped down um, from JME. So I think that um, that transition is is and continues to be um, exciting for both of us in, in ways that we might not have um, have thought. And, and the, the editorial, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, Kathy, you know, uh, seeks to, to tease that out a little bit. Hmm. And I mean, yeah. I mean, l- l- let's let's kind of continue along those lines. Um, so yeah, I mean, you mentioned like the editorial, and and it's quite interesting for someone like me, kind of middle, late, early career stage, to see like you know like how you reflect on your on your career pathways, and and I think like. One one thing that we discussed in in emails before recording the episode, like about we discussed um, kind of papers that you've seen um, as editors. So could could you kind of talk a bit about like papers that that you found inspiring? Well, um, I found all of the essays <laughs> that that came into the journal of manuscription as being inspiring because it was really an innovation we were both significantly committed to um, providing an opportunity for management educators in the JME space um, which is active mm. and engaged pedagogy to um, be uh, que- questioning um, the, the paths that we take in the classroom, um, the, the way in which we construct our, uh, our teaching careers. Um, and so the, one of the papers that, one of the earliest papers actually, um, uh, that was accepted as an essay was the Deller, uh, sorry, Daler and Welsh, um, against spoon feeding, um, for learning, and Reflections on Student Claims to Knowledge, uh, which just really opened the door to a lot of the current questions that we're asking about how we're interacting with our students and, um, and 
what is our responsibility as educators um, in terms of content knowledge? You know, mm. that that um, all we should be focusing on, and and how should we engage with students in that in that activity? And uh, that's a like we could do forty five podcasts on <laughs> the papers that have influenced us, and so it's a really interesting exactly. question in the editorial. Um, we, what we found very interesting was new work on academic career trajectories. And mm-hmm. uh, we really liked Maria Kramer and her colleagues' work from a, a 2019 paper in the Academy of Management, Learning, and Education, uh, where they talk about a new tempo of academic life. Mm-hmm. And we found that was, I think, part of a special issue and um, building on Frost and Taylor, and thinking about, again, sort of different ways of bringing back, how should we be thinking about our own agency and our own options in in academic life? And really, I think giving some, giving some permission, maybe that's the wrong word, but giving some permission to explore some different pathways. And, and mm. so we found that very engaging as, as we move ahead in this life transition. And in the journal in JME2, you know, Jeannie, Jeannie was the essay queen as the editor-in-chief. And um, I, in our division of labor, when we right. created, we had, a, we had a, a strict division of labor and it worked really well, um, <laughs> which we recommend for all journal editors that are co-editors. Yes. But um we started a section called Instructional Change in Context to give voice and space for authors who were, whose institutions and maybe even geographic areas were just starting on an engaged learning path. And so what was new for them in terms of engaged teaching practices, sort of small, you know, even small group work, role play, mm. things like that, that's not mm. new for us in a Western space but it's really new for them. And so a paper that uh, I just accepted, one of my very last ones as editor-in-chief, um, explores how the, the Middle East is starting to use the case method in very engaged ways. And the case method has been around for a million years in the West, but mm. for them, it's a significant innovation. And so I love how contexts around the world are moving toward engaging their students differently and hearing those voices from from our instructors is really is really exciting oh, absolutely and being able to mm. and being able to nurture the early careers of folks who are outside of yep. um, the solely western uh, context you know hear, hearing from voices all over the world one of the Mm. One of the things that we we worked really hard about during the years that we were uh, uh, JME editors was expanding the the reach of the journal to uh, become a resource for educators in other contexts. And so we needed to hear their voices. And Kathy was the ICC queen, so I can um, you know t- uh, tout that innovation um, on her behalf. It was really an opportunity. Um, for educators in the West, but also educators outside of the the Western industrialized nations to understand um, how mm. education was happening, management and, and, uh, and learning was happening in, in other contexts. I think that's, I mean, I'm really proud of that. I think that that's um, something that we were both purposeful about and also able to, um, to, enact um, during the course of our editorship. And I think that the new editors are, are also um, uh, committed to that as one of them is lo- located outside of the Northern Hemisphere and that uh, brings mm. a richness to JME as well. Absolutely. And, and I think that's like what, what you both, both like Kathy and Jeannie, what you mentioned about agency and kind of these career pathways because like sometimes it feels that there is like a certain way of being an academic right so it's really conformist in many many ways so like Mm -hmm. you know there's no way how can how can that be inclusive and then because i mean that also transmits to students right right? 
Right. Exactly. We've been thinking yeah. a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> so of course, you know, you, well, in, in the actual episode, you can't see this, but I'm holding Taylor and Welsh piece here. And <laughs> thanks for sharing. Like it was really, um, it, uh, okay. This might sound a bit cheesy, but like it really gave me goosebumps when I was reading that because like it really resonated. And, um, in many ways, like what I really like about this, like they sincerely, they talk about failures, like how mm. they failed in the course and how that kind of gave rise to new ways of uh, thinking about pedagogies in a business school setting. Yeah. 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 Gordon, uh, Gordon and Anne are, are, are um, fearless people and yeah. um, they, they have a very interesting way of being vulnerable in their writing uh, that I think really speaks to people. And I will, if it's okay with you, I will be delight. Like Gordon would be delighted to hear that he that you had that reaction to his paper. I'll be sure to email <laughs> yes, him. Yes, yes. <laughs> He'll love it. Yeah. When I, it was funny when I first read that the the first draft um, uh, of of the essay, it reminded me of the very first time I walked into a classroom as the sole instructor, and how terrified. I was, and I had already done, you know, teaching assistant work and stuff like that. And I was trying mm. something very different um, that was totally acultural from what the students had been used to. And at the end of the semester, a student came up to me and said, you know, I didn't learn anything in your class. Ow. 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 And it was so... Um, it was so disruptive to my identity as, as, uh, as a successful educator or, you know, someone who was engaged. And I reflect mm. on that time all the time as I try new things um, in the classroom that sometimes it doesn't go well the first time. Um, and that, mm. uh, we learn from our experiences. Oh, wow. We learn from our experiences. How odd that, uh, that, that should be part of our, our, uh, our teaching engagement but it's um yeah i mean i guess it's not easy because like everything is based on like performance right you know we are supposed to we we never talk about the the manuscripts that we get rejected or desk rejected or bad student evaluations i mean it's not like just part of which is really bizarre but um yeah yeah well we we have uh developmental feedback and evaluative feedback and too often we mistake one for the other i think in terms of Mm. how we feel about our manuscripts how we feel about our our teaching and learning journeys um that student gave me developmental feedback even Mm. though Mm. she didn't know it um that uh, that helped me grow as an educator and so i am thankful um for that comment, even though, sorry, even though it was so uh, um, difficult to hear at the time. Mm. Well, one thing we do um, when we run, we'll talk about this a a little bit later when we talk about our new venture, Seneca. Um, One of the things that we, when we run paper development sessions that, that we make sure that we talk about to both of your points is separating out the, the person from their work Mm. And we often conflate those two. And so when you get, for example, a negative student evaluation or you get a desk reject, we really try to tell people to stop using the word, I got rejected. No, 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 no. You didn't get rejected. Mm. Your paper got rejected. They don't even know who you are. And trying to put some of that separation in um, and you know, with student evaluations and things like that, you know, how can you create some structures that put, Mm. put some steps in between you and that feedback and help you make sense of them? Because I think our our work is so personal to us and it's what we do for a living. You know, we think for a living and teach Mm. for a living. And so when we get negative feedback, it feels very personal. And so we try to help authors and and educators build some of that space in because it can be devastating you know 
Jeannie's experience could have had the complete opposite effect, which would have been, I'm, I'm terrible at this, and then just shut her down. I mm. think Jeannie's, Jeannie's ability to take that, uh, that kind of singular feedback piece and try to make sense of that speaks more to her and her ability to, to manage that than anything the student tried to do. And I think we, we don't help people enough mm. around us do that because mm. it can be devastating, devastating. You know, we know plenty of people from our editorial days who say things like the reviews and the editor comments when I submitted my very first paper as a doctoral student were so vicious. Mm. Uh, I can almost never send anything in again. And that's a much more common experience than, than one might believe that they just got completely shut down. So uh, oh. we have to be very careful. And I know we're going to talk about reviewing soon and we have, we have quite a bit to say about reviewing. <laughs> <laughs> Developmental. <reviewing>. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so, sorry, that kind of, um, I was kind of drifting away with that a bit, but like, I would like to go back to the paper once again, like, and I really need to say the full title out loud because it, it's really amazing. So against spoon feeding for learning reflections on students claims to knowledge. So, and, and you have both been kind of hinting at this, or, well, quite explicitly as well, but like, could you share a bit more? Like, you know, why, why are you excited about this paper? Well, I think what what Kathy told you or what Kathy mentioned was the the quality of the reflection and understanding that that's really part of the educator's journey. Um, mm. That it's not. It, it, we sometimes think of uh, our work as teachers as being a single pathway from us to our students and then our students go away and, and we do it all again. Um, and I, I don't know how we could possibly grow as individuals if we didn't consider what, what our takeaways are from the experience that we had with our students. And you, you had raised in your email the question of spoon feeding and, and are we, are we still spoon feeding our students? And I, I wondered, mm, yeah. actually, I, I will turn this back to you. What was it about spoon feeding that intrigued you um, in the, uh, the, the paper that you read? Mm. So I think, um, so when I think about the way I started my studies in, in a university, so I, I did my first undergraduate degree in political science, and, and basically we had like an entrance exam and it was really about learning by heart. Um, mm -hmm. I remember reading the book five times from kind of cover to end. And I remembered, I learned by heart Max Weber's definition of institutions, right? And I was like really, really excited <laughs> because back then I had this idea that, you know, I want to become a diplomat. Um, I tried, I applied and I failed. But then when I got in, into the uni, I was super excited, idealistic. And then what I was given, and, and the content itself was really, like, I enjoyed it a lot. But it was mostly book exams and lectures. Like, really, um, Ginny, what you mentioned, like, kind of one-way transmission, right? And, and that continued for quite a bit. And I was like, there has to be some other ways of going about um, because it, it, it really kind of the, the notion of agency really kind of inspires me that if we don't um, if if we don't equip or inspire our students to become kind of active members in the surrounding society, then what are we doing here? What is our purpose? basically? Mm. I, I don't know if that's kind of mm. explains. Well, it does. But... And I think, you know, for me as an editor, um, what excites me may or may not be the same thing that excites a reader 
at a, a different career stage or uh, in a different context. And so it's always interesting mm. to hear what was it about a paper that I was excited about? Why, you know, why I was excited about it and, um, and what they, what they learned, what they read. And in this case um, it's, it's so consistent with what Gordon and Anne were talking about that we, we put things out there um, because we think they're interesting or important. Um, but if we don't, allow our students the agency or the readers the agency to mm. find their own way in a it won't be retained and b it won't be important and so that's um that's consistent i think with why i was excited about the piece mm. I just like really everything gordon and ann right <laughs> sort of pretty much um He's as an editor, um, my happy place, which remains true. I like a lot of things about being an editor, but my happy, happy place was working directly with authors. And um, mm. when I work with Gordon, um, he's a very intense writer, as are many of our authors. And so we would get on the phone uh, and it, just watching that paper and other papers really develop um, is really one of the the joys, absolutely the joy for edit uh, for me for being an editor. So I just mm -hmm. like everything they write. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my, Kathy, that's actually like a nice segue to the next question, right? So like talking about the review process and like so how how do how do you find that and like being close to the authors and but how do you see the future? I mean, one thing that came into my mind is there's like the number of submissions is increasing all the time so like mm. do we reach like mm. a tipping point or yeah would love to hear your thoughts well so we have written about this and uh, <laughs> and we were part of a special section um for general management inquiry um and richard stackman who is the current co-editor there had had invited us to talk about that um Essentially, we have to stop making reviewing invisible, or hmm. that sounds very active. I want to put it the other way. We have to stop ignoring reviewing uh, because the, it's such a mismatch. You know, the currency of academic life are publications, and we, we completely reward that space or those performances, as you had said before, Mika, mm. um, the performance aspect of that, while we ignore the mechanism that makes that possible. And Jeannie and I have come to believe, given the developmental, the deep developmental feedback that we have experienced through journal management and education as its own form of intellectual contribution. And so we routinely encourage our reviewers move that up, right. move reviewing up in your CV, mm. make, make a subsection that says other intellectual contributions and put the reviews you've done, um, put how many rounds you worked through a paper, right. mm. put the journals that you're reviewing for, put the editorial board memberships you have in there. We're contributing substantially to the development of a paper and we have to acknowledge that. Right. And it has to mm. be visible. And that's, you know, um, Dirk Lindbaum um, wrote a paper recently uh, for uh, organization where he talks about um, just that, that issue uh, and, you know, is, is basically asking the fundamental question, can we publish without review? Um, what would that look like? Um, can we uh, rank journals that publish without review? Um, it, what are what are, what are the ethics involved in um, peer review as the basis for the currency of publication? And um, you know what historically, uh, b before the institutionalization of academia, um, mm. uh, people would write, authors would write, academics would write, um, 
and they would put their work out there and others would comment on it, but it was, it wasn't a precursor to the publication of an article. It was the genesis of, uh, of commentary. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've completely turned that intellectual engagement into uh, a very different industrialized scheme of journals and publications and the currency of academia. So um, I think the, the questions that he is asking and that organization um, uh, is giving him a platform to ask is, um, can we change the structure in which we find ourselves um, and the standard that we use to make this invisible visible. And I think Kathy's, you know, as, as Kathy indicated, we've talked about this quite a bit. Um, we've written about it. Um, we think that there are ways in which individual academics can, can gain agency, but ultimately it's a systemic issue um, as well mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. will require a more collective um, a response. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. right. Our, the, the title of our article was The Long Goodbye, uh, because it's simply an unsustainable system. Uh, with, as you noted, Mika, many more journals out there, many more requests for reviewing. I mean, think about how many requests to review do you get a week from journals? Mm -hmm. A lot. And um, our solution, I guess, or our sense of an immediate fix, fix, I guess, is a, an overstated word, but was on an individual academic level, you know, moving it up, making it more visible, influencing your promotion and tenure standards to include things like, like peer review. But Dirk's, Dirk's approach is more, like Jeannie said, systemic. He's going right to the accreditors and, and mm -hmm. um, has engaged leadership at Equus and AACSB in the service of saying, this is absolutely something that should count. Um, as an intellectual mm. contribution, and you have to build that into standards. So he emailed me and said, "We'll see how it goes." <laughs> I think he's—he's. He's, I don't know that he's not he's optimistic. Very optimistic. But, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a very optimistic he's pretty, guy overall, but yeah. Who knows? Yeah, I think he's being realistic. He's a very optimistic person, but I think he—he's um, asking for something very structural, and uh, so mm. we're all crossing our fingers. <laughs> well, I think you know. I think even though you haven't asked us this, I think the the ways in which academic careers are evolving um, and the nature of the, the the increased pressure on individuals who haven't previously had that pressure to publish or be involved mm -hmm. in um, the publishing arena, um, uh, of research, uh, and, and scholarship, the way in is in many times through reviewing, you know, understanding what the, the, yep. the conversation is mm -hmm. and yep, being right. engaged in that process. And so that's, if that's part of the development of scholarship, why is it invisible? It shouldn't be invisible. Um, it, mm -hmm. it needs to have more um, respect, I think, is, is, you know, a good review takes a long time. A good review is a thing mm. of beauty. It is a thing mm. of beauty, and you know, I mean, we all all the journals that I that I have worked with have you know best reviewer, outstanding reviewer awards on an annual basis, which is you know one way to acknowledge people who are doing really exemplary work. But that doesn't. Um, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Thank you. It, it, it doesn't <laughs> highlight all of the um, the journeymen, in, uh, for lack of a better term, people who are doing good reviews, solid reviews all the time, repeatedly, often mm -hmm. many more than we think is healthy because they love doing it. Um, and, you know, that that can't be an invisible currency in, a, in our field. It just can't. So, um, mm. Exactly. Well, I think you actually, like, just two quick reactions. Um, like, 
what you mentioned, like move reviews up. I mean, that's a hashtag right there. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's no so doubt. Get an ad sign as a hashtag, right? <laughs> exactly. And I think um, I I don't know if you saw this, and like I forgot. Um, I I can look it up. Um, but this was like circulating on Twitter earlier today. Um, like in in the morning here in Japan. But someone made calculations that basically review work counts as, was it like the value of that on an annual basis is something like 100 billion USD, which is... Ah, interesting. Very interesting. You know, from the publisher's model, it's, uh, it's an awkward conversation. I guess we should just put it that way. Because their revenue stream is dependent wholly on this free labor. And um, that is a conversation that uh, even in our best relationships with a variety of publishers, they sort of don't want to have because they know it. I don't know that they have any solutions to it. Mm. Um, But certainly the value of, of journals, if you go backwards toward the the supply chain if you will it all rests on exactly. excellent reviewing and yeah. and that's a, that's tough yeah it's when, exactly right when kathy and i um uh took on the reins of jme we um we asked a group of former editors who, who we knew and respected if they would help us um by being a sounding board for ideas um, that Mm. we had from time to time, just from their own experience, give us some feedback on what they thought. And one of our ideas, um, one of our early ideas was that we floated was, well, what about publishing the names of the reviewers with the article, you know, given that the reviewers were willing to have us do that. Um, And it was like, no, no, there was no. there was collective and there were collective electronic horror, like, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was really I, interesting. It, it was it was really interesting because um, it's not only the publishers; it's also our field, um, the blind review, which is is in place for a variety of really excellent uh, reasons in terms of power and. Um, uh, and, and just power, I think, you know, more than anything else is mm-hmm. <laughs> the issue. Um, but the, the invisibility of reviewer work through the blind review process is also uh, it, a contributory, if you will, to the, mm. um, to the problem. Well, one yeah, of the objections... One of the objections, you know, I had forgotten about that, Jeannie. Um, That was very early on. And one of the objections that was raised was that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, the idea that if we published the names of the reviewers, there's a sharing element there. It, It would confuse people as to who is the actual author. And we never in a thousand years would have thought about that as an objection. Um, and so we thought that was super interesting about our willingness to take credit or no, the, the model is predicated on credit taking as an author without needing to share that credit. It's somehow, the idea is it somehow dilutes an author's work, my role as an author, because I have engaged with these other people who have helped me. It was, we were so taken aback by that. Um, So taken aback by that. And, and I think that's a huge hurdle. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it does reflect on the individualistic ethos. Yes, absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. That, you know, we, we are who we are as academics through a community. Yes, Um, absolutely. We we don't say that nearly enough. Um, You know, uh, individually we get titles and appointments and, and uh, things that build our reputations um, in, in the field. 
And that's one aspect of what both of us have benefited from, um, quite honestly. And at the same time, Mm. we're not who we are because we individually came to be those people. You know, the, the, the community that has sustained us, the MOBTS and Journal of Management Education, the Academy of Management, Management Education Division, and Kathy's affiliations and others and my affiliations and others, all of those engagements have informed who we are, how we think, um, who we connect with in, in the world of academia. And so when when we publish together or, or with others or singularly, um, it's not just our name. I mean, it, it, it truly isn't our name or our thoughts that just popped into our heads and, and mm-hmm. came out mm-hmm. fully, fully developed. And I think doctoral students really struggle with that. You know, the, the people who are working with them are people who have been successful in the field according to the standards of the field and the individual nature of doctoral education is also just replicating that model. And so mm. a lot of times doctoral students don't know that there is this community that has nurtured um, uh, others and will, will nurture them as well. That's, I found in, in mm. talking and working with doctoral students, that's the, the thing that they're least aware of. Um, in, uh, in academic life. And I mean, that really, that made me think, okay, well, first of all, um, shared the link. It was, apologies, it was not 100 billion USD, 2.5 billion <laughs> USD, but still substantial amount. Substantial. That is not insignificant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Absolutely, no. yes. Thank yeah. you for checking your facts. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try my best. Um, but actually, like, what, what, what you mentioned now, like, I was thinking, and this kind of goes to the next question, right? So, like, how do you see the the future of publishing, or how should should it or could it look like? Um, because as as I was listening to you, I was thinking that imagine how interesting would it be when you submit a manuscript to a journal, and then you have this option: Would you like to share your authorship authorship with the reviewers? Yes, no. I. Uh- I, you know, Whoa. that is a, <laughs> I think we're so, so many things would need to change in that model. I mean, mm. on the face of it, that's kind of a no brainer. You know, why wouldn't you do that? Depending on, I guess, the quality of the review, we'd want to be able to, we'd want to yeah, be able right, to vet those right, reviewers right. out because they need some skin in the game too. Right. Um, mm. The great majority of developmental reviewers are, are fantastic. Uh, I, I do think this mania, you know, to Jeannie's point before about the, the hyper individualistic, atomistic nature of how things count would have Mm -hmm. to be completely changed. And, um, on the face of it, for us, it would be great. I, I have no problem with that. I'm not at an institution, however, where I have to care about that. And we have lots mm. of colleagues who are in institutions that thin slice all of these different ways of counting things and ranking things. And you have to have so many yeah. first authors and so many sole. Or- I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's madness. And so going back to sort of Dirk and, and what he's trying to do from a systemic level, so many things would have to fall in line and, in our uh, JMI paper, one thing we talk about is when you are in as a senior-ish person, when you're in a role of influence, this is your mm. time. And both Jeannie and I, and I currently sit on our promotion and tenure committee, you can have some of those influences mm. and say, well, uh, you know, this is a viable way of looking at somebody's scholarly production. Let's think about this. Let's look at the ways they review. Let's look at the ways they engage in the community. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to have more of those voices. Right. And at my institution, we have done that um, as well. I was on the promotion and tenure committee um, a few years ago. And 
we are accredited by ACSB, so a lot of what we do we see within that uh, framework. Um, and there's nothing that precluded us from considering reviewing as another intellectual contribution. So we do, um, you know, mm. uh, editorial boards, think, things that uh, indicate participation in the intellectual project, if you will, um, mm. whether it's author, authorship ha- sits at a different level um, within that schema, um, but it is considered another intellectual contribution. And I think that that's right. You know, and I, I would encourage other institutions to consider doing something like that um, uh, to acknowledge not only the people who are authoring, um, but and many of them are also reviewing, which is just you know great. Um, and they depend on people who are active uh, authors in many ways, but also uh, for folks who are contributing in other ways to Mm. their success. I think that's like, I mean, those are like fantastic points. And like, I really love this idea of like making, like highlighting reviews at every stage, wherever you can. And I mean, systemically, yes. And like, I don't know, this is a really silly thing, but I was thinking about like printing t-shirts in a sustainable (laughs) fashion, of course, like, no, I review for... Like, you know, attending conferences. <laughs> Ed board member. <laughs> exactly. Well, we have seen, uh, kind of to that point, in some of the meetings that we've gone to, there are Zoom backgrounds that indicate one's role as a reviewer, as an author, as an Ed board member, as an editor. And I think that's, mm. in some ways, we sort of, Jeannie and I were sort of pushing back on that as a... Uh, you know, it just felt labely and it felt it put people off who did not have those roles. And another way to look at it is bringing, bringing a little bit more visibility to those roles. Right. It's like the name tag that you wear or the little, you know, the, um, I don't know, those ribbons and things that when, when you go to a face-to-face con, you know, (laughs) an editor or president or board member. Yeah. 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 And so those can work both ways, but yeah. Yeah. So actually like, you know, I'm actually really tempted now to ask because the the previous or the next question would be, would have been about um, kind of junior scholars and publishing uh, pedagogical papers. And I mean, that I would, I would love to hear about that for sure. But then a, a, an optional question, how would you say for a junior scholars, what are the benefits of reviewing? So you have like A and B options. Oh, well, yeah. Kathy talked so, about that. <laughs> uh, we have a lot to say about that too. So I think not only just for um, pedagogical or scholarship of teaching and learning research, but in general, I think sort of a composite statement is people just need help. And mm. we've talked about this a little bit before. There are institutions types of institutions, people who are being measured now on publication or reviewing or, or anything in that publication enterprise who have had no training at all. And we've heard stories of people that have been in the, at their institutions for some time. And then f- one year they are not responsible for publishing and the next year they are. And it's like a light switch. And that's not how it works. There's a whole infrastructure mm. and, a, and a process, of course, that goes into being successful in the publication enterprise. And it's much more competitive now. Um, the journals aren't really accepting more articles than they did 10 years ago. And there is mm. a multiplicative number of people now more trying to get into those same journals. And so we're hearing in um, AMLE has an acceptance rate. Uh, We had a paper in there last year and they told us the acceptance rate last year was 5%. So from, for every 100 papers, 95 are getting rejected. That Mm. seems low to me. And so we, it's very competitive. People don't know what to do. And so 
you know, they, they're not getting any mentoring support. And so we need to do that um, collectively. And one of the things that we observed as editors was that when we do give people support or, or mentoring, it tends to be in a very monodimensional way. Mm. Not that that's not valuable, but it tends to be, here's a paper development session. Come with your ideas, come with your manuscript, come with your draft, and we'll help you do this. And publishing is much more than just your ideas and the manuscript. You know, Jeannie said before, this is a collective effort in many ways of engaging the idea. How does it find its way into your head? Mm -hmm. And then what steps do you have to take? And we can define those steps. People don't know what those steps are. And so we are convinced that faculty development to publish in any realm, not just SOTL, um, but in any realm, it really has to move from focusing, again, sort of individually or atomistically on an idea, but on what does this person need? We have to really meet faculty and educators where they are. Mm. And, um, and right now, the workshopping is not, is not doing that. And we need to do better than that. I think, too, in, in res with respect to reviewing and why reviewing is a developmental tool, um, stu uh, students and young scholars don't often see what a manuscript that they're reading looked like when it was first submitted. Mm. And that behind the curtain sort of experience can be really helpful for an individual or a group of, of authors to understand this is what we see here. Here's the gem, the hit, the gem as, as, uh, as Kathy refers to the, the reason we want to move a paper forward at JME was because it had a gem. It wasn't necessarily a fully polished and in most cases wasn't mm. a fully polished gem. And the review process is the polishing yeah. uh, in, in, in um, cooperation with the authors, the reviewers provide um, for lack of a better term, the, the grit um, that, that helps shine it up, if you will. Um, and then the, the authors have to rub it on in order to, to make it shine. But for someone who wants to write, being able to see that process and participate in that process for someone else, so it's not, it's not my work that's being reviewed. It's someone else's work. So I'm going to help that person. Mm -hmm. And then when I undertake my own work, I'm going to both think about what others will think of it, but also understand how the reviewers are interacting with it when, when and if I'm given a revise and resubmit. So I think that, that that's a learning curve and a learning process that, that people benefit from by serving as reviewers. There's so many benefits. Um, that's, you know, what Jeannie said is, I think, one of the major ones. Um, but, I mean, it helps give you ideas. You get to see some of the very newest literature, uh, right. which is fabulous. You get, an, you get an eye on, in the reference section, there, I don't know that there's ever been a paper for which I've reviewed that I looked in the reference section and found an outlet I, I really didn't know much about, or I didn't know about at all. Um, and I think there's a, there's a really significant professional currency in building that reputation of giving really excellent reviews. Um, good things come to good reviewers in a community sense. Uh, but one, one thing an author said to me about the benefit of reviewing uh, was super unexpected. He said, "The discipline, learning the discipline of giving developmental or sometimes difficult feedback to an author has made it easier for me to do that as an educator with my students. I have found new mm -hmm. language by which to give my students developmental feedback I didn't have before. And so when we do our uh, developmental reviewing best practices workshops, uh, we have some conversation about what we call the spillover benefits, and there are there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them that can serve 
to your question, Mika, junior faculty, mm. uh, you become part, you, you have a way into some conversations that you did not have before and build a skill set that is transferable to other spaces. Mm. No, that, well, okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that like spillover effect. That really resonates. Mm. I like that. Yeah. Like, wow. So, okay. Um, this has been absolutely wonderful. <clears throat> Sorry, um, Kathy and Jinian. We, I would love to continue this, um, but all good comes to an end at some point, right? <laughs> Sorry for the for the cliche, but <laughs> couldn't resist. Um, but but we ask from our guests um, the kind of final question. And I think you have kind of answered this already, um, but who or what would you consider as a cloud reacher in your field? We, we had really a lot of fun thinking about that question from you. And we're going to go with the what. And we have talked about this a little bit uh, throughout our conversation, which is the idea of how do we regain agency and joy in our work in a very an increasingly managerialist environment. And so um, there's this aggressive move, for example, toward contingent faculty, short-term contract, people with mm. very little protection, very individualized, sometimes marginalized. And so for us, cloud reaching in higher education means really finding ways to increase agency and bringing back that autonomy and some of those academic values. And um, how do we increase voice in this new normal? That's our cloud reach for sure. Right. right. I think, you know, to Kathy's point, we all need to be cloud reachers now. Um, that uh, it means we need to get involved in governance. We need to find ways um, to use our voice um, uh, through our institutional roles to sustain the shared governance model in higher education, um, which is really uh, sort of a fundamental attribute of higher education, both historically and hopefully into the future, that it is one of the few mm. places where um, the the scholar um, is a citizen, both of their their country, their locale, but also their institution. And that's, I think, what makes higher education unique um, and, mm. and provides a, um, a model um, that I hope will not be um, minimized through and, you know, uh, uh, yeah, um, environmental shifts have taken place for lots of years, and we are clearly going through another environmental shift um, worldwide for a variety of reasons. Um, I hope that we are able to hold on to that that core value within higher education, regardless of the, the shifts that may take place in terms of the employment relationship or the, um, the needs of organizations in terms of their resources and adaptation, that, that the shared governance mm. model can, can be a pillar of that change rather than a constraint. You know, even as we innovate, right? I mean, right, we have to right. That more. Yeah. Right. I mean, faculty, in my experience, um, uh, sometimes get a bad rap, if you will, um, because the reward structure is misaligned in relation to the citizenship that faculty are both expected to engage in and want to engage in. Um, and, you know, we've talked about uh, reviewing as something that needs to be visible. Well, service and governance need mm. to be way more visible and more highly respected and regarded um, in terms of the overall reward structure 
for, um, for faculty and institutions. And we're the only ones who can insist that that be the case because we are the ones who are being asked to do more um, and, uh, and to be engaged. So there you have it. We, we think uh, everything should be visible um, and institutionalized in the reward structure. Duh. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> If that's where we want to be, if that's who we want to be. <laughs> exactly. I mean, absolutely powerful, wonderful words. Um, professors Jeannie M. Forway and Kathy Lundin, thank you so much once again for joining us on this episode. Um, I truly enjoyed this. And um, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Well, and we look forward to speaking to you um, through our podcasts as yeah. well. No. It, this is a joy. I mean, we could, again, this is a gift to be able to talk thank about so this. Much. So thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely.